On January 6th, we witnessed a failed coup attempt. Now, another attempt to undermine our democracy is ongoing. If we don't end the filibuster and pass the For the People Act and other necessary legislation, we will face an avalanche of propaganda, gerrymandering, and voter suppression that could lead to a fascist regime intent on never giving up power. Some politicians have concluded that democracy is no longer in their interest. And we have a Supreme Court that cannot be relied upon to uphold our constitutional democracy. If these far-right politicians take power, they will dismantle democracy and enact laws that ensure they remain in power indefinitely. So far, Republican legislatures have proposed over 400 laws in 49 states restricting access to voting. 18 states have already passed 30 of these laws. Every law-abiding citizen has the sacred and fundamental right to vote, of which we cannot be easily deprived. We demand that Congress pass the For the People Act to set national standards to ensure that every citizen can vote and that every vote is counted. Americans support the provisions of the For the People Act. They want easier access to voting, and they don't want unscrupulous politicians and partisan election officials to overturn the results of elections or to frustrate the will of the people. When it comes to setting the rules for our lives, we want the freedom to vote in a transparent process we trust so we can elect leaders who deliver for us on the issues that most affect us, from creating jobs to providing affordable care. Yet Republicans in the Senate continue to block debate on the bill. Far-right politicians are determined to undermine public confidence in the 2020 election and are using the big lie to pass anti-democratic laws. They continue to filibuster voting rights legislation. Our democracy and the American way of life is at stake. Our constitution and democratic form of government are under siege. The filibuster should not be used to undermine democracy. Democracy is collapsing worldwide. The failure of democracy in America will have terrible consequences for democracy around the world. We cannot continue to support dictators and overthrow democratically elected governments around the world and expect democracy to survive. We must not take democracy for granted. We must fight for our God-given freedom to rule ourselves. Whatever our color, background, or zip code, 
In America, we deserve to have the true promise of democracy made real for all of us. We demand that Congress stay in session and not go on recess until it passes the For the People Act to stop gerrymandering and voter suppression. Gerrymandering is the process of drawing state and congressional districts in a way that favors one party over the other. Voter suppression is making it more difficult to vote. These practices lead to more extremist politicians who need only appeal to their base. It also leads to more corruption because politicians are unaccountable to the community. We need districts that represent the interest of our communities, not the interest of political parties and politicians. The For the People Act bans gerrymandering. This is why we must pass it now before states begin drawing congressional districts based on the soon-to-be-released census data. These newly drawn districts are to be in effect for the next 10 years. Unless the For the People Act is passed, one in two Americans could live in gerrymandered districts for the next decade. The For the People Act is our best chance to stop mass gerrymandering. The 2020 census results will go to the states on August 16th. At that point, corrupt politicians will use the data to gerrymander voting districts. According to Represent Us, 30 states are at high or extreme risk of gerrymandering this year. The For the People Act makes gerrymandering for federal office illegal in all 50 states. If we don't pass the For the People Act by August 16, politicians in these states can immediately start gerrymandering, choosing their voters instead of the other way around. There are real Americans everywhere whose lives are impacted every day by our broken democracy. If we pass the For the People Act, billionaires and special interests will lose some of their outsized influence in Washington, D.C. Politicians are about to start rigging their voting maps for the next decade, and we are nearly out of time to stop them. Let's tell Congress, don't come home from recess until gerrymandering is illegal. Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and politics. We engage scripture in its historical context, plumb its depths, for wisdom and guidance, and apply its lessons to current events and social issues. Whether you're a liberal evangelical, a New Age spiritualist, a social justice activist, or a postmodern theologian, there's something in this show for you. Come, be energized in spirit and mind 
to understand the word and what it means to be a spiritual person in today's world. Welcome to Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Elder Camara, a Brazilian archbishop of the latter 20th century, famously said, If I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. If I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. People of power and privilege love charity. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel virtuous. It makes them feel powerful. But justice? That's not quite as popular among the privileged and the powerful because it feels threatening to power and privilege. So those who speak of justice get tagged as dangerous and subversive. And that is what happens to Jesus in today's passage. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's read Matthew 12:22-32. Then they brought to him a demoniac who was blind and mute, and he cured him, so that the one who had been mute could speak and see. All the crowds were amazed and said, "Can this be the son of David?" But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, "It is only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, that this fellow casts out demons." He knew what they were thinking and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your exorcists cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man? Then indeed the house can be plundered. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. For the second time in the story, the human characters refer to Jesus as the Son of David, although this time it is a question, not a declaration. This question reflects the hope of a Davidic Messiah that would liberate Israel from foreign imperial domination. The question arises in response to Jesus liberating another demon-possessed man. As I have pointed out in previous episodes, Demons were an extension of Satan, which was understood in some ancient Jewish resistance literature and the literature of the early church as the spirit behind the empire. So this man has been liberated from a deep spiritual imperial oppression. That is why the question arises as to whether Jesus might be the son of David. Jesus' exorcism activity is the activity of liberation from the empire. 
The Pharisees don't necessarily see it that way, however. For the second time, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being able to cast out demons only because he draws power from the prince of demons, Beelzebul, another name for Satan or the devil. While the literature of the early church and other Jewish resistance literature of the period understood Satan as the spirit behind empire and sociopolitical forces of domination, it's not clear that the Pharisees understood things the same way. While some Pharisees did actively resist the empire, even joining peasant resistance movements, such as the Jesus movement, for the most part, Pharisees were part of the upper classes and fairly collaborationist in practice with the empire. It is likely that for them, Satan was the spirit of general lawlessness and disorder, which threatened the social order in which they had carved out a comfortable place with considerable power. We even learn from this passage that they had their own exorcists, perhaps practicing with a different conceptualization of pathology that they were addressing when casting out a demon. The accusation that the Pharisees make against Jesus, that he casts out demons by Beelzebul, works in much the same way that a term such as terrorist is used today. While many poor people around the world suffer from the terrorism of wealthy nations like the U.S., the wealthy nations use the term terrorist solely to describe elusive individuals or groups that present a threat to their security and hegemony. The term has even been applied by the FBI to groups such as Greenpeace and People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. In modern terms, the Pharisees are calling Jesus a terrorist. But Jesus doesn't allow their definition to stand. He turns the tables on them. His logic might sound simple to the modern reader. Why would the prince of demons cast out demons? A house or city divided cannot stand. But the illusions that he makes cut much deeper for the original audience. As I have mentioned previously, the term house was a political term. The Roman Empire was the house of Caesar. Israel was historically the house of Jacob. And every royal Israelite lineage had its own house. And in this passage, we see that the term house is used in parallel with the terms kingdom and city. Jesus starts talking about breaking into the house, plundering it. He speaks of tying up the strong man. Even in modern political parlance, strong man often refers to a tyrant. Whereas in modern usage, at least in the wealthy English-speaking countries, it refers to a dictator in a poor country. In Isaiah, it refers to the leader of the most powerful empire in the world at that time. Isaiah 49, 24-25, in its ancient Greek version, speaks of the liberation of the people of Israel from the Babylonian strongman. Same Greek word. It reads, Can the prey of the mighty or the captives of the strongman be rescued? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the strong man be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Isaiah speaks of liberating the people from the strong man of the empire, i.e. plundering the house of the strong man. Jesus has just liberated a demonically possessed person from the spirit that powers the empire and then speaks of breaking into the house and tying up the strong man so that he can 
plunder the house. The plunder, that which he steals, are the humans held captive by the strong man. They call him a terrorist, someone in league with Satan. And he says, no, I'm not a terrorist, but I am a thief. I am a thief who is breaking in and plundering the house right before your eyes. I'm stealing back the people that you have taken captive. This highly subversive image of Jesus as a thief who breaks in and steals occurs six times throughout the New Testament, including one more time in Matthew. This subversive metaphor complicates the question of just who is serving Satan and who is serving God. The mention of a divided house or city falling is very likely an allusion to the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70. Remember, this gospel was shaped into its final form about 15 or so years after that event, and Jesus will very clearly talk about that event later in the story. Israelite rebels briefly liberated Jerusalem from the Romans in the year 66 and held the city for four years before the Romans finally crushed the rebellion and destroyed the city in the year 70. While Roman military power certainly played a major role in the defeat, the rebels also suffered from internal division. Rebel factions attacked each other within the city, weakening their ability to fight the Romans. In fact, it is not at all clear that the Romans would have prevailed without the internal divisions among the rebels. Divisions were fierce and brutal and resulted in hundreds, if not thousands, of Jewish casualties. The division between rebel factions led by the aristocracy and those led by the peasants constituted a major fault line in the resistance, with some of the aristocracy eventually aligning with the Romans. That fault line, of course, existed long before the rebellion and would have been present at the time of Jesus. So this division between the ruling classes and the peasantry would play a major role in the fall of the House of Israel, and it constituted also a major target of Jesus' work and message. So the image of house in this passage has a fluid double reference. The house divided seems to be the house of Israel, the house of Jerusalem, while the house plundered seems to be the house of Rome. But the former existed within the latter, with the leadership and aristocracy in pretty much full collaboration during Jesus' time. And ultimately, in this story, it is about social and economic class. The ethnicity or nationality of the ruling class is irrelevant. For the kingdoms of this world are all one house, one kingdom, where the rich and the powerful rule over the poor and the weak. They are one kingdom of domination, animated by the spirit of empire, which is Satan. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come
verses that have troubled commentators and lay readers alike for centuries. Jesus warns against blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He says that blasphemies against himself will be forgiven, but not those against the Holy Spirit. What is he talking about? Well, first of all, let's remember that Jesus in Matthew often speaks in hyperbole like a good Middle Easterner. So we don't need to take this literally, as if Jesus is articulating a technical theological principle. But rather, we need to understand the emotional force behind this declaration. The key to understanding this declaration is in its emotional dimensions. The Holy Spirit is the active dimension of God, the liberating work of God in the world. The Pharisees have just witnessed its work, the liberation of a person from the demonic oppression of the empire. And they called that liberation evil. One way to conceptualize demon possession as portrayed in Matthew is that oppression shuts people down and drives people crazy. In any oppressed community, some people crack and have mental breakdowns. They might become mute or even blind, just as the man in this story is both mute and blind. Or they might become full of rage, shouting at people no one else can see, like perhaps the two demoniacs that Jesus and his disciples encountered in the region of the Gadarenes. These people then would be understood as being demon-possessed. Another deeper and, I think, complementary way that this has been conceptualized is from a systems perspective. Certain individuals bear the symptoms for the community. They express the insanity of the situation. They express the rage so that other people don't have to. Or maybe they express a type of deep psychological resistance through not talking or being blind. In both cases, then, they are understood to be demon-possessed. The Pharisees have just seen such a person liberated, and they call it evil. They call it the work of Satan. Jesus informs them that this liberation is the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. He effectively says, You can call me all the names you want, but don't dare disparage the liberation of people who have been oppressed. Calling the liberation of someone from oppression evil, that is true blasphemy. That is the unforgivable sin. That is what offends God's honor. What is going on in this passage is a difference in pathology. Jesus and the Pharisees diagnose things differently because they understand the underlying problem differently. The Pharisees come from the upper classes. The upper classes consisted of two classes, the elite and the retainer class, the former employing or retaining the latter. Most Pharisees were likely from the retainer class, the scribal class. They might be like upper-middle-class professionals in our world. So they were invested in the prevailing social order, They would never admit, even to themselves, to collaboration with the Romans. But as supporters of the temple state in Israel, which was effectively a Roman puppet government, they were effectively collaborators. Not that much different from the way that many of us in Western society who have privilege 
collaborate with systems of injustice and domination that we find ourselves unwittingly embedded in. While some Pharisees could see through the propaganda of the systems that privileged them and so sympathized with or even joined resistance movements, most Pharisees had a more or less law and order mentality and were defensive of the status quo. When they encountered someone who they considered demon-possessed, they saw someone in need of rescuing because that person had been overwhelmed by the spirit of lawlessness and disorder and was a threat to society in their current state. And if that person were liberated by someone who themselves was a threat to society, then it must be a trick. But Jesus asserts an opposing conceptualization of pathology. The demon-possessed person has not been overcome by a general spirit of criminality and lawlessness, but has cracked under the weight of an oppressive situation, a situation of domination by the upper classes and the empire. The person is manifesting the full-blown symptoms of being victimized by these entities. And until the source of that oppression is dealt with, until the strong man is bound and his house plundered, the root cause will not have been dealt with. In fact, until that happens, the demon could come back to the person that it has been cast out of, because it's not just about individuals. It's about kingdoms. Jesus will continue in the next episode to diagnose the problem as a collective problem, as a systemic problem, as a clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. Until then, my name is Bert Newton. The special music for this episode has been provided by Murray Hammond. You can find his music at murrayhammond.com. And this has been Episode 30 of Bible Study parody and subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus Satan, your kingdom must come This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.